All right, we are in the book of Colossians. If you'd like to open to chapter 1 in your Bible or navigate on your device. Colossians 1, uh, verses 9 through 14 is our text. We're taking our time. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. The topic, Paul uses one of his favorite illustrations of the Christian life, telling us to walk worthy of Jesus. The title of our message, Take a Walk on the Worthy Side. All right. It takes more than makeup to be a walker. Walkers are the zombies on the hit series, The Walking Dead. Don't act like you didn't know that. They're never called zombies. They've been called biters, creepers, dead ones, floaters, geeks, lame brains, lurkers, monsters, roamers, rotters, and skin eaters. Mostly, however, they're called walkers. As I said, you can't just walk on set with makeup and be a walker. The casting process involves actors going through special training. The show's special effects guy says, well, you know, every season we hold auditions for future walkers, and we have affectionately termed it zombie school. So they will come to zombie school, and they will audition for me. I usually do 20 or 30 people per class, and I spend an entire day auditioning people, putting them through some exercises in terms of how fast they walk, what their character is, and what their personality is. So I don't know if you, if you watch the show or if you've ever seen a zombie movie. Apparently, zombies have different personalities. They all seem a little bit similar to me, but maybe uh, with your trained eye, you can pick this out. Now, pardon the segue, but Christians can be considered a type of walker. Think about it. The most common description of our relationship with Jesus on earth is that of a walk. We typically use this several times a day. We talk about our walk with the Lord, or we ask somebody how their walk with the Lord is going. But not just any walk. Listen to these verses. Here's Ephesians 4.1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct or your walk be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Look in our text today at verse 10, that you may what? Walk worthy of the Lord. Christians are a particular kind of walker. We are a worthy walker. Let's shorten that and call ourselves worthies. I'm going to use that term this morning, and it can be kind of our own little term of endearment uh, here at Calvary Hanford to refer to each other as Christians. We are worthies. Now, our first thought when we read that we should walk worthy is that we must prove our worth, that being worthy is something to be earned over time. But that's not the sense you get here in Colossians. For one thing, this was Paul's prayer for them. These were things he was asking God to do for them, not them to do for God. And for another thing, Paul was praying for them to walk worthy right now in their present situation, not in some faraway future after they graduated worthy school. How can we be considered worthies right now? I'll organize my answer to that question around two points. Number one, you're a worthy by receiving God's filling And number two, you are a worthy by remaining fixated on God. Let's take a look at God's filling in verses 9 through 12. Basic definition of a zombie is a corpse that still functions and tends to feed on human flesh. I don't want to draw the comparison too much, 
But basically, all human beings in our natural birth are considered the walking dead. We read in the Bible that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2, 1. When you're born again, you remain in your rotting body of flesh, but in the knowledge that one day your spirit will be resurrected or raptured into a new glorified body that's fit for eternity. If you're among the walking dead this morning, if you're someone here who's not in Christ, then God the Holy Spirit is here working in your heart right now to reveal your need for salvation. Our prayer collectively as Christians is that you would call upon the Lord and be saved, that you would realize that you're a sinner in need of salvation. You can't save yourself. Even one sin is enough to earn you hell and cost you heaven but Jesus died for that one sin and many, many others so that you could have eternal life. And so listen to the still small voice of the Spirit this morning leading you to Jesus Christ. Now verses 9 through 12 tell us how Paul prayed for those in Christ in the city of Colossae. If you want to do a great personal Bible study, identify and read all the prayers of Paul throughout his epistles. He wrote, I think, 13 epistles, 14 if you think he wrote Hebrews, and many of them contain prayers. At one point in his ministry, Paul tells us to imitate him the way he imitated Jesus. And so his prayers would be a good place to start. Not to learn them and pray them, but to see how he prayed, in what circumstances. Uh, very unusual sometimes the way he prayed uh, in discovering the will of God. And so good exercise for you. So let's begin in verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Epaphras had traveled from Colossae to visit Paul who was under house arrest in Rome. Epaphras gave Paul a report about the believers in Colossae. And that's what it means when it says, since the day he heard it or we heard it. Paul didn't pray for usual things or in the usual manner. He asked that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this is accomplished by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't explicitly mention the Spirit, that's true. But I think we can see that is who and what he intended for at least two reasons. Number one, Ask yourself this, can I fill myself? And the answer is no. This is something God does to you. May be filled puts the responsibility on God. It is something he does to you. And then number two, the very language and imagery of being filled always takes our minds back to the day of Pentecost when Jesus gave the church the promise of the Holy Spirit to fill and to go on in filling us. Reading the New Testament, you get the idea that the writers believed that if you were in Christ, you were filled with the Spirit and continuously experienced fresh infillings. The Holy Spirit doesn't always need to be mentioned. He's implied. It's understood. And um, I think I've shared this with you before. Uh, it's interesting. The sense you get from reading the New Testament is that the apostles and the writers understood that if you were a Christian you were filled with the Spirit, and they encouraged you to go on experiencing fresh infillings of the Spirit. And I remember one study we did a while back where I tried to explain how the, the terminology Spirit-filled Christian would be strange to these writers. They wouldn't know what you were talking about because they didn't recognize Christians who were not Spirit-filled. 
It was the norm in the Christian life. When Paul encountered some uh, guys who said they were believers, they were disciples of John the Baptist, and he asked them about the Spirit, they said, yeah, we don't know anything about the Spirit, because Paul understood that, hey, if you're a Christian, you're filled with the Spirit, and you go on being filled. We have kind of gotten this idea that there are super Spirit-filled Christians who do all kinds of weird things with their hands during worship, and then there's regular Christians who don't have quite that attitude towards the Holy Spirit. But that's all an experiential hokey-pokey stuff that we've made up. These guys are saying, hey, you're a Christian. That means the, what? The Holy Spirit indwells you and he fills you and he goes on filling you. And that is what God is doing to these guys in Colossae. So very important that we understand it's not explicitly said, but it's obviously implied. He says, you're filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that's therefore not something to be discovered after a long, protracted spiritual search. No, it's something immediately available to you, thanks to your infilling by the Holy Spirit. Paul's not saying, someday I hope you have real knowledge of God. He's saying, no, you need to realize the knowledge of God you have right now. Paul qualified God's will by saying it is all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The word spiritual qualifies both wisdom and understanding meaning sometimes the knowledge and understanding of the Christian life is going to seem contrary to that of the world around us. If you're not sometimes going against the flow, then you're probably missing something because God's ways and God's will is often contrary uh, to that which we would naturally assume to be the case. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Now, wisdom refers to what we believe as Christians. Understanding refers to how we can behave as Christians. And so very simply put, Paul is praying that all believers yield themselves to the indwelling spirit, applying God's wisdom to their lives, and conducting themselves accordingly. God's will in this context is not a mystery to be discovered. It is already revealed to you in his word. It is his instruction on being a man or a woman of God, on being a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, an employer or employee, doesn't involve guesswork, only yielding in obedience. And so if you just received a uh, notice from Words with Friends that it's your turn and you want to play, I'll say that this is the last thing you need to listen to because this is what it all is going to boil down to. Whatever God has called you to be or to do, you can do it right now. You don't need to read another book you don't need to have any more devotions, although you should. You don't even need to pray about it very much more, although you should. I'm not saying not to do those things. But if God has called you to be a better husband, a better wife, father, mother, employer, employee, you can do it right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you know about Jesus that saved you is enough to bring you forward. Now, you can add to that knowledge and get deeper and more involved in it, but you can do what God wants you to do. And this, it sounds so simple, but I think this is where we get off track. We start to believe the longer we walk with the Lord that we're, we're falling back, that we're, you know, we're, we're not able to do the things that we do. I, I remember when I first got saved, God saved my marriage. Uh, Pam and I hated each other. We wanted to divorce each other, but neither one of us wanted to pull the trigger. Divorce back in the Middle Ages was a little bit different than it is now. And so, but we did. We hated each other. And when we got saved, we immediately loved each other with God's uh, agape love. And he saved our marriage. He, he saved our lives. And, and it, was, it was amazing. I didn't have to go to some school to think, well, now what am I supposed to do about this person that I hate? 
No, it, it, you know. Now, what happens over time, this happens to couples, what happens over time, then you find out people, they've been married 20 years, they end up getting a divorce. Wow, what happened? What happened to that initial dynamic power that saved their marriage? What happened? Is that power insufficient? No, they moved away from the understanding that they were filled with the Spirit and could do what God was telling them to do. And so that's the point that Paul is making. And it's very important in the context of what was going on in the city of Colossae because these false teachers were coming in and they were saying, you guys are horribly deficient in knowing what the Christian life really is. You need our secret knowledge. And for 1995, just as shown on Shark Tank, you can have it. You know, it was that kind of a thing. And Paul's saying, guys, everything you need, you got the moment you were saved. And you can do what God is asking you to do. You might not be able to articulate it as well. Uh, you know, you might need to read some more about it, but, you know, that's the deal. And then remember, too, I don't want to get off on a big tangent, but I am. Uh, I learned that from Don McClure. He would always say, I've only got 10 minutes, so I better make this fast. And then he'd go on for another 30, you know, and stuff. But anyway, um, now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> It'll come back to me in a minute. <laughs> Kids, never do drugs. <laughs> Colossians 1.10. I, I actually did forget. That you may walk worthy of... Oh, here it is. I remembered, yeah. <laughs> no, don't, I'll forget again. You have to remember, too... Because, and, and now again, please, I mean, I, I've been here 30 years. You know that I love God's word and I wouldn't say anything out of school. You have to, we think that the key to everything is, is we just keep reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. And the more you read, the bigger, you know, your spirituality is going to get. Do you understand that these Colossians had the book of Colossians and maybe some other letters that were circulating? They didn't have what we call the New Testament, and they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that was the word of God for them. And, and so what Paul is saying, Paul isn't saying, you guys, get on your year-long reading schedule, and, you'll, and after a year, you'll be able to be a better husband. He was saying, no, you guys, you have what you need right now. And all that the rest of it is going to do is flesh it out and make you stronger and stronger in what you can already do that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Worthy is a word I stumble over. In so many ways, I am not worthy of the name Christian. No matter how long I walk with the Lord, I'm gonna continue to fall short of sinless perfection. My life is two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes one step back and two steps back. I mean, you know, you just, you understand that you're not actually worthy. But that is not how Paul is using the word. He's telling you that your being filled by God is what makes it possible for you to walk worthy right now in every circumstance and in every situation. You were declared righteous, and now you are a worthy as you simply yield to his will. Fully pleasing him seems to be another way of understanding the phrase walk worthy. Adam Clark commented, do everything in the best manner in the most proper time and in a becoming spirit. If you know hardly anything of the word of God, you can do those three things, do it in the best manner at the proper time in a becoming spirit. Another commentator said, to walk in Christ is to live a life patterned after his and empowered by his spirit. You begin doing that the moment you are saved. The moment you're saved. 
you understand enough about Jesus Christ and his nature and character to walk with him. And uh, you have his spirit to empower you and you're able to do these things. And so do it right now. Do it at home, do it at work, do it at play, do it in the church. Take your conversations with others as an example. No matter what another person says to you, since I'm filled with the Spirit, I can respond in a manner that would please Jesus and be worthy of a walk with him. Or I can be like one of the zombies. I could be a biter, a backbiter, seeking to devour them. See what I'm talking about? In any, we expect people who aren't Christians to act normal, don't we? Road rage. I saw a crazy road rage video the other day. This is what the internet is for, but anyway. So this motorcycle, I don't know what happened prior to this. I'm guessing a car cut off the motorcycle. So the motorcycle's coming, rider's coming, and he gets alongside this car, and he kicks the door. They're going 60 miles an hour. He kicks this guy's door, and the guy reacts by turning into him. Now, you think the motorcycle is going to ditch, but he didn't. He maintained control. What happened is the, auto, uh, the, the automobile, he overcompensated, overcorrected, spun out, jumped the divider, and some poor family that was heading, you know, not knowing what was going on, head-on collision, flipped their car and killed I don't know how many people. Now, we look at that and we think, what's the matter with you? We believe that any human being can control themselves in a situation like that. God is saying, you can do so much more as a Christian because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think anybody needs to tell you that you should answer, uh, uh, that a soft answer will turn away wrath, or that you should be kind in your speech, that it should be seasoned with grace. No, you you don't realize that by reading a verse. You know that because Jesus saved you, and his spirit is in you, and his spirit is gentle and uh, kind and comforting and those kinds of things. And so Paul is saying, walk worthy right now. I can't stress enough that we see these exhortations as immediate responses, not things I might someday achieve on my own after years of spiritual discipline. I can always choose to please him instead of myself. Paul next mentions four ways we do walk worthy. If I'm filled with and yielded to the Spirit, these four things will be evident in my conduct. So verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Language scholars say that what Paul wrote in the original was that you produce fruit during your good works for the Lord. And here he's drawing upon another illustration of what it means to be in Christ. He is like a vine. We are the branches. We bear fruit for him, not through personal effort, but through obedience. And again, I think in a subtle way, this is where we go wrong. You get saved later in life. And you understand the power of God and the strengthening of God and all of this. And then at some point you begin to believe that you're uh, begun in the spirit, but you need to be made perfect by your own strength and effort. And we start to substitute our own strength and effort for the filling of God. And, And it doesn't work because then we convince ourselves we can't do it. Our bookstore is no different. Well, our bookstore is different. We only have good books. But uh, most go to a Christian bookstore, there are umpteen million books on marriage. Everybody's got an angle. Apparently, this book doesn't work for me, so I have to have this book, and this didn't work, so this one. All of it is self-help and self-effort. You should have one book on marriage. You open it up to the title page, and it says, Be Filled with the Spirit. 
And then you close it and you go do that. By, it, you've got the Bible so you can read and it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. All I have to do is understand how much Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Honey, I'm gonna love you the way Jesus loves me. And when I fail to do that, I'm gonna ask for forgiveness. Oh, what just happened? Christianity just happened. And the wife, she's gonna submit as unto the Lord. Well, what does that actually mean? What is that word submission? I want 17 pages on the Greek. What is that, how is that really used? And what does it really mean? Nobody seems to be able to figure it out. No one has figured out in book form what it means to be submitted, but you already know. In your heart, you already know each time. You know that it doesn't mean that you submit to abuse or violence, but you do know that you should reverence and respect your husband the way that you reverence and respect the Lord. And so uh, we, we... we go backwards in our Christian life. We don't go forward. We start spirit-filled, and then we convince ourselves. We even get into doctrines that say, well, there is no continual filling of the Spirit. It's just you know, our own personal effort. We need the Lord. Now, the second characteristic of a worthy is increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge is a buzzword being used by false teachers. They're telling the Colossians that they were deficient in the true knowledge of God. In order to attain this knowledge, they must jump through religious hoops of various kinds. Did Paul mean that there was secret knowledge to be discovered? You know the answer is no. John Gill wrote, It may be observed by the apostles asking for them that all our knowledge and the increase of it and all our fruitfulness and good works, all of this comes from the Lord. Now, we can grow in knowledge of of the Bible. We can know the you know, the order of the books of the Bible. We can memorize verses. We can, you know, have Bible study and know all the characters and stuff like that. But Paul is praying for something that God must give them. Paul's not praying for them to be diligent in their Bible study. He's praying that God would immediately give them these things. And he must be able to do that, otherwise Paul wouldn't pray about it. We would say the knowledge we need is always available to us Now, it does usually present itself in the Word, but if it doesn't, you figure it out by yielding to the Spirit. Uh, I'm sad that the What Would Jesus Do campaign got overused. Uh, I guess there was no stopping it once it became a coffee mug, Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But if you have very little of the Word of God, or maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years and you, you, you feel like you're deficient in your understanding of the Word you can still secretly think, well, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? I've seen him in a few situations, or if I haven't, I've seen him in my situation, dying on the cross and rising from the dead for me. I know that because that is the gospel. So how could I die to myself in this situation and live for Jesus? And so every Christian has that as a bedrock, and I think that's pretty powerful. You at home or at work, are you willing to die in that situation? And, and bring forth resurrection power? That's really the only question you need to ask. Third characteristic of a worthy, verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Strengthened is a tense of being, of being strengthened. I always stumble over that. Might is the word we get our word dynamite from. And so Paul is saying, at all times you can be strengthened by dynamite power to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a future hope, it's a present reality. According to his glorious power means that when you behave this way, people will understand it can only be by the power of God working in you and through you and it will bring glory to God. 
It's most evident during afflictions and trials, verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Tribulation works patience, so we're talking about trials, and it literally translates remaining under. We use the word endure. Long-suffering translates to long-tempered. It means self-restraint. Patience in this context has to do with circumstances. Long-suffering involves people. The fruit produced by God in and through us by His glorious power is to remain patient. We're empowered to endure our circumstances. The fruit produced by God in and through us by His glorious power is to be long-suffering. We're empowered to be long-tempered with other people. I hate my circumstances. I don't want to be in a situation with other people. I ask God to deliver me. God says, no, you're not getting it. This is where I produce fruit in your life. Go ahead and pray all you want that, that God would take the disease away, to take the illness away, that he would remove whatever it was, get you a new job, whatever it is. But when God doesn't do that, or while you're waiting for him to do something, he expects you to endure in his power. And when it involves other people that you just don't like, I mean, be honest, you just don't like them because they're treating you poorly and you're praying for the new boss or a new job or whatever it is, God says, no, I want you to be long-suffering with them the way I was with you. And again, you don't need a course on long-suffering. You don't need to study long-suffering. You just need to remember that while you were yet a sinner, God died for you and then he saved you. Why should he have been long-suffering with you? But he was. And so what can you but be long-suffering with others and show his long-suffering to them. You know, before I went into the ministry, I worked at a title insurance company. I was a salesman, and, and I loved to be persecuted. It was the greatest thing in the world because it didn't involve anything physical. I wasn't thrown in jail. I wasn't beaten to death. It was all just yelling and stress and pressure. I remember one time, I've told this story a million times, but one time I was called into the boss's office because I made a decision that he didn't like. It wasn't a bad decision, just something he didn't like. He was under all kinds of stress, He's a great big guy, six feet two, and just kind of scary, and he just started pounding on his desk and screaming at me. I mean, this is in the workplace. And I'm sitting there, and, I, you know, and all the employees are out there. They can hear it. I'm sitting there, and I think, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I got that scripture, a soft answer turns away wrath, and I just let him... I, I'd been used to this growing up in my Italian family. I just... <laughs> I just let him yell himself out. I mean, he was beat red. I mean, it was, at one point he hit the wall. I mean, this was scary stuff. And uh, finally he, he sat down exhausted and he said, don't you have anything to say? And I, I said, well, John, apparently I've made a decision that caused you some trauma. I said, I will never make that same decision again. Get out! I couldn't start laughing until I got to the hall, you understand, but it was fantastic. I loved it. It was the greatest thing ever until our office got raided and served with a search warrant. That's another story for another day. <laughs> but that's, you know, I'm not, I think I've fallen from that, tell you the truth. I'm not nearly as patient as I was back then after I first got saved. And that should be of some concern. I want to return to that kind of powerful Christianity. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says all of this is done with joy. 
Usually I'm wanting to get out of my circumstances, not endure them with joy, or I want God to change people, not in, be long-suffering with them and do it with joy. Now, the fourth characteristic of a worthy giving thanks to the Father, Billy Graham wrote, Thanksgiving for the Apostle Paul was not a once-a-year celebration, but a daily reality that changed his life and made him a joyful person in every situation. Thanksgiving, the giving of thanks to God for all his blessings should be one of the most distinctive marks of the believer in Jesus Christ. We must not allow a spirit of ingratitude to harden our hearts and chill our relationship with God and with others. In part two of this morning's study, we'll see some blessings we can always be thankful for. We really can, in everything, give thanks. God's filling makes all this present a present moment-by-moment possibility. We're not someday going to be given a certificate that says we've earned worthiness. We receive it. And by receive, I mean you realize God is in you to empower you to obey him and bring forth fruit. Uh, The remaining verses, you're a worthy by remaining fixated on God. Now, fixate is a word we normally associate with an unhealthy obsession, but it's a good word to describe the mindset of a worthy. Not just focused on God, but fixated in the sense of always willfully directing our eyes towards the Lord. Paul's going to exhort us to do this again later in the letter. In Colossians 3, 1, he says, Since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. In other words, fixate on Jesus and on heaven. If you do that, you're going to walk worthy on the earth. Verse 12 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. This verse is a promise to each and every saint. It is not something to be earned, but something you receive the moment you were saved. When God saved you, when you believed on Jesus Christ, you were qualified to partake of the inheritance of the saints. Not talking about your individual rewards you might earn over your lifetime. He's talking about the eternal inheritance of each and every believer. He's talking about things like the promise of a new glorious resurrection body, of a mansion in heaven, of spending eternity with the Lord in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. If you get saved today, that is your spiritual inheritance stored up for you in heaven. No one can take that away from you. Nothing will change it. You get saved today, you're you're headed for heaven in a new glorified body into a mansion in the new Jerusalem where you'll be with Jesus for all eternity. That belongs to you from moment one. You can go on and earn rewards, and that's a great thing too, but that's not what Paul is talking about. If you've ever bought a home or a car and taken out a loan, you had to be qualified for it. The moment you were saved, God qualified you because it doesn't have anything to do with your credit score or anything you can do. He qualified you because you're in Christ, because Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and you're in Christ, you're now qualified for this eternal inheritance. You can't become disqualified when it comes to the inheritance of the saints. It's secure for you in heaven. Whatever earth holds for you, and beloved, you know that it will be brutal at some point. Heaven awaits with its beauty and blessing. That's why you can always give thanks to the Father. At the end of verse 12, Paul uses the phrase, in the light, which dovetails into verse 13. He says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. You've been once for all delivered from darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. Like every other human being, you were born under the power or the authority of darkness, born with a sin nature. You sinned, 
and you were held captive by the devil who is the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of the darkness of this age. But when you got saved, you were rescued and transferred, rescued from that kingdom, transferred into the kingdom of God. Delivered has the idea of being rescued, conveyed uh, means removed in the sense of being relocated. And so you were rescued and relocated to the authority of the Son whose kingdom is one of light. Calling Jesus the Son, by the way, it's a challenge to these false teachers. They always, not just these guys in Colossae, but every false teaching there's ever been or ever will be minimizes the person and work of Jesus Christ. They make him less than God. And by calling him the son of God, Paul is making him equal with God in nature and characteristics. The son of God is not a created being like an angel. He is like God. He is God. And so that's what Paul is setting them up for. We'll see that later in the epistle when we start talking specifically about false teaching. John Walvoord wrote, there is a glorious kingdom ahead of us, the glory that is going to be ours in the predicted millennial kingdom, and then throughout eternity as we are with Christ. In view of these things, God has called us to walk uh, to a walk that is in keeping with our destiny. We walk worthy of God because we are saved, because we are uh, a child of the King by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're struggling every day to be joyful in your patience and in your long-suffering, you can fixate on what God did for you yesterday and what is waiting for you tomorrow. Yesterday, on some wonderful day, He saved you you were rescued and transferred from a kingdom of darkness leading you to hell into the kingdom of light and heaven. Tomorrow, when he comes for you to resurrect or rapture you, you'll see his son and you'll love him for eternity and remain together for all time. Meantime, verse 14, you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's for today mostly. Because we've been redeemed by the death of Jesus, we enjoy minute-by-minute forgiveness of sins. And boy, do you and I need that. If you're like me, you feel anything but worthy. If you leave this morning and think, I'm totally worthy in and of myself, then I've not done my job. If you leave thinking, I'm worthy because of what God is doing in me and can do through me, then that's the idea. But you, you feel anything but worthy. In fact, there seems to be a growing sense of just how sinful you remain. The the normal Christian life, in case you've been afraid to admit it, isn't that every day you feel like, man, I've defeated more and more sin, I'm down to that last sin, and then I'll be perfect. The real Christian life is a greater sensitivity all the time to what a sinner you really are. You first get saved and you think, oh yeah, I, I quit sinning, I don't do the things I used to do. I don't get drunk. I don't get stoned. I don't, you know, do whatever and stuff. I've quit doing those sins. But then as you walk with the Lord, you start to think, I'm a sinner. I have thoughts and attitudes that are just wicked. And nobody sees that. Nobody knows. In fact, I don't even try. I I quickly dismiss that. But, you know, you realize just how selfish you, you remain because we still have this body of flesh. And this is where you think, but for the forgiveness of sins, man, I would be lost. And so God saved me and, and I'm going to heaven. In the meantime, I'm struggling against the flesh. And when I come to the conclusion that I'm still a sinner, God is there to forgive me and I can continue to walk worthy of him. I'll close with this. It's from a hymn. 
The hymn writer wrote, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free, this is a pathway of blessing for me. Let's pray.